Welcome everyone to Bar Talk, the official podcast of the North Carolina State Bar. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a partner at Womble Bond Dickinson in Charlotte, North Carolina. We have an exciting episode for you today uh, where we go down memory lane a bit and talk about the history of legal aid uh, in North Carolina, where we've been, uh, what we've accomplished and where we're heading uh, into the future. Uh, And to do it, we really have three giants uh, in the legal aid field. Um, Ken Shore is the executive director of the Charlotte Center for Legal Advocacy, formerly Legal Services of the Southern Piedmont. He's been there since April of 1988, and there's few people better to give us the long history of legal aid uh, in North Carolina. Uh, We also have George Housen, who is the very first executive director of Legal Aid of North Carolina. He's been there for 20 years, since 2002. And that was kind of formed as a consolidation of 17 different legal services programs. And we'll hear a little bit about that from from George. And then Rick Glazier is the executive director of the North Carolina Justice Center. Uh, He's been there for six years following his service in the North Carolina General Assembly. He was in the General Assembly for 13 years uh, as a representative in the House of Representatives for Cumberland County. Um, I'm really excited to have all three of you with us. Appreciate you taking taking the time to talk to us today. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. Yeah. yeah. Great. Let me start with you, Ken. I know, you know, I, when we look at the history, you know, I think I grew up thinking legal aid was always around, but that's obviously not true. And actually, I was surprised at how relatively recent the idea of legal aid uh, in, in or legal service in North Carolina is it looks like 1962 was the first date that any legal aid society was formed. That was the Legal Aid Society of Forsyth County. So exactly 60 years ago this year, it looks like Mecklenburg County started a legal aid society, which then turned into Legal Services of Southern Piedmont, which then turned into the Charlotte Center for Legal Advocacy back in 1987. So 55 years ago. Um, And obviously you're now the executive director of what's one of the oldest um, legal aid services. Could you could you give us your perspective, I guess, on you know, how how things got started and, and how you got involved? There there are very few legal aid programs in the country that predate the war on poverty in the early 1960s. Um, you know, started by the predecessor to the United Way and some immigrant aid societies in uh, Chicago and Baltimore and Atlanta and some other places. And I think that the Forsyth County one was sort of started in that fashion, but most of them, including all of the others in North Carolina, came out of the war on poverty and the Office of Economic Opportunity in the early mid 60s um, went around telling the the community action programs and the local bar associations that if they'd set up an organization with a board of lawyers and low income people, they'd give them a grant to start a program. And that's how almost all the ones in North Carolina were started, including the Legal Aid Society of Mecklenburg County in 1967. Um, And there's a a kind of a complicated history of the relationship, how many there were and how they were configured um, that evolved um, from time to time. But our program has been uh, a mostly a regional Charlotte area program for for now uh, 54 years. So before the programs existed, I guess you might have individual lawyers be willing to do something on a pro bono basis, but there was no structured place for someone that didn't have money that needed help with a legal problem to go? 
in the in the very early 60s, I think like 1961, there was a group of lawyers in Charlotte. Um, I, you know, Ace Walker, Russell Robinson, the big the big names of the bar, who just set up a very informal thing where the secretary of the county bar would take calls and would pass them around to this handful of lawyers who would do cases pro bono, but there was no organization. It was a very informal arrangement. Um, I think there probably were counterparts to that in other cities as well. Gotcha. Now, George, I know we had different legal aid uh, organizations form either as a result of the bar or this war on poverty, um, and they were just each operating in their own communities. Um, now we have um, Legal Services of North Carolina, LANC, um, which actually is an umbrella organization that covers the whole state. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how that emerged and, and I guess it coincided with your service uh, as executive director of that, of that umbrella group? Well, um, Legal Services of Southern Piedmont was part of Legal Services of North Carolina, which was actually a nonprofit formed by the North Carolina Bar Association back in 1976, I think it was. And um, Will, Bill Thorpe and some others put together the, the program. And from that, the, that was the umbrella organization. The, the Bar Association was the sole member of this nonprofit. It was a member nonprofit. And they uh, funded programs throughout the state. I think there were 17 or 18, as you, as you alluded to at the time. In, in some rural areas, some, some areas that uh, were not ex exactly, you, you think of a Husky and places like Pembroke, um, where Rick is from Fayetteville, which is a rather large city compared to Pembroke. Fa the Fayetteville office was actually the satellite office of the Pembroke program, which I think hmm. to this day, the, the Cumberland Bar is uh, uh, resistant to. But in any event, that Legal Services of North Carolina was the statewide umbrella program for all of those programs. And they took the federal money and funneled it out to the programs, including Legal Services of Southern Piedmont. I think in 1998, and this was before I even got there, because uh, I arrived in North Carolina in 1998, I think they, um, they made it one organization. And in 1999 is when, uh, or 2000 is when the, the Bush administration determined that they were going to, all over the country, they were going to consolidate multiple programs and, and turn them into statewide programs to reduce the administrative costs that were going into this and, um, uh, and just make them more effective. And, and for whatever reason, um, the, the program here, the transition process from the year 2000 until 2002, involved a lot of negotiations, including with Ken's program, because there were some programs that did not want to come in into the, into the unified program, because uh, coming into the unified program meant that you were then governed by all the restrictions that uh, really limit the ability of legal aid programs to deal with impact, class actions, voting rights cases, um, immigrants, undocumented immigrants, for example, we can't serve those people. And there's a great need for that. So um, programs, Legal Services of Southern Piedmont and PISCA, and at the time, the Legal Aid Society of Northwest North Carolina, which is the Winston-Salem program, 
made efforts to stay out of that consolidation so that they could continue to provide what we call the restricted services to vulnerable, to, to vulnerable special populations. And then it was finally in 2002 that legal aid was uh, incorporated and, and, and from there we've, uh, we've, we've passed on to the next 20 years here. But there was a lot of negotiation over two years and there were, I, I think Ken could correct me if I'm wrong here, there were two or three iterations that the federal government did not accept and we had to go back to the drawing board. And I don't think it was until the third try that we came up with something that actually was accepted by the federal government. And again, the determination was which programs are going to get the federal money, the LS, the Legal Services Corporation money. Um, and so there were some division and negotiation that went on over that two year period. Interesting. Now, Ken, I know you're not part of the legal aid, you're Charlotte Legal Center for Legal Advocacy separate and PISC is separate. Are there other separate groups as well or are those the are those the ones that are that are independent from legal aid? There are about a dozen groups, and and some of them are, are different for for historical reasons. For there's specialized prisoner legal services, disability rights, North Carolina, uh, the land loss project, uh, the financial protection law center, um, the North Carolina Justice Center. Um, help me, uh, Rick. There's some children. There's some children's children's defense projects in Charlotte that are very important to the work that we do. Um, those sorts of things. Yeah, Ken's right. There's about so, a dozen of them. Okay. So, so there's, there's specialized programs, but um, PISC Legal Services and the Charlotte Center for Legal Advocacy are the only ones that operate geographically across a range of practice areas. And um, and and for you know somewhat for somewhat different reasons. I mean, our focus has been a, a lot on restricted activities, uh, systemic advocacy. Um, class action litigation and um, and representation of immigrants. The, the immigration court for the entire state is in Charlotte, and so we're the biggest president nonprofit presence in the in the immigration court. Um, and most of the work we do there is work that an LSC funded organization would not be permitted to do. So a lot of it's just functional to to try to get more services to more people to to have this structure. Makes yeah. sense. Rick, Rick, could you tell us a little bit about the North Carolina Justice Center in terms of its role and, and history? Some people may be less familiar with that than, than legal aid. Sure, Mark. Um, and, and much uh, in, in the same vein as, as uh, George and Ken have talked, I mean, all of our programs focus on the striving for equal uh, justice and for access to the courts uh, for the most vulnerable communities and communities often left behind. The Justice Center emerged from the North Carolina Legal Resource Center, and then that sort of morphed in the mid-1990s to the North Carolina Justice and Community Development Center, uh, which became the Justice Center. Uh, we're in our 26th year uh, of existence um, uh, as a result, but it all came out of the limitations Congress put on legal services in the mid-1990s uh, when Newt Gingrich was the um, Speaker of the House. And those limitations included the inability to use that money for class actions, for immigration cases, for lobbying efforts. Um, and those limitations spurred the development of organizations like mine, and particularly my, the one that I now lead, to do those functions that were barred then by federal funding. Um, our mission hasn't changed, which is uh, the mission as a statewide organization is to alleviate poverty uh, wherever it exists in North Carolina and its consequences. 
and, and to do that through multiple uh, theories of change, um, litigation being one, lobbying being another, uh, journalism and reporting being another, community education another, and policy research a fifth, and to recognize that issues of poverty come to all of our organizations, not siloed. Um, when someone has a foreclosure issue, they're probably also without health care or getting ready to lose health care. If they're unemployed, they're getting ready to lose their house. Their kids may be suffering trauma at school. And so it's an understanding of holistically dealing with the family and communities that are in poverty and trying to deal with policy solutions uh, at the lobbying and legislative and congressional level as well. Thanks. Now that's a helpful overview. Um, obviously, all the organizations have had significant accomplishments over the years. And so I'm almost in a short podcast, we can't cover all of them, but I'd love you to each maybe highlight one, maximum two things that you're particularly either proud of, or maybe that people don't really understand or know uh, that, that your organizations were able to, you know, accomplish over their history, just to give a flavor. Again, I worry a lot of the history gets lost. We forget about, everyone's worried about today. We forget about some of the big changes and accomplishments. And, you know, we assume that a lot of, you know, people uh, with low, low income folks have always had some of the rights they have today. And I know that's not true. Ken, let me start back with you. What, if you had to point to, to one or two things, and I know they're probably 20, what would you highlight? Well, I would say, one of the things that our agency and with the other legal services programs accomplished over the years was to make the safety network better. That for, you know, when I started my work in legal services, um, agencies that were responsible within the social insurance agencies, public assistance agencies, um, just didn't um, operate according to their own rules. They weren't open. They weren't consistent about taking applications. They weren't consistent about following the statutory standards. They didn't have fair hearing processes. And through a large series of cases over a long period of time, we really made the system work the way it's supposed to work, where a person can get an application filed, can get a decision within a time period based on the facts um, that are relevant to the, to the rules and can have a fair appeal. Um, and and it, it's been, you know, it's a series of cases over a long period of time. And to a, to a similar extent with, with the housing, uh, access to, to housing that eviction, um, you know, 40 years ago, uh, if a landlord presented an eviction, there was, there was no chance that a tenant would be able to um, avoid eviction, um, regardless of the facts and regardless of the, of the landlord's evidence. And, and we, we, you know, through persistence of doing cases and bringing test cases, we made um, the courts operate according to the statute. We made the, the subsidized housing operate according to the federal uh, rules. So we sort of, I sometimes think of us as being the quality control office for a lot of the public agencies that serve low-income people. Great, that's, that's interesting. George, what would you, point to or highlight? Well, I think, I think two things, Mark. I think the, the consolidation allowed us, even though we can't do impact work and we can't do class action work, the size of our organization, now we're, we're 500 plus employees and uh, nearly 300 lawyers, the size of our organization has allowed us to bring resources into rural communities that otherwise the local 
organization could not have supported. So we do a lot more litigation and we have focused on litigation and improving the quality of the litigation to the extent now that we, uh, because of the consolidation and, and our ability to move these resources around, we do between eight and 15 appeals in the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court every year. And, and that was not the number that were being produced under legal services of North Carolina, not anywhere near that amount. And, the litig and we're doing mostly defensive appeals because we're winning at trial. So the idea that we were able to bring these resources to bear and, and bring resources, to, again, to communities that really didn't have uh, the local funding sufficient to support that kind of litigation. And, and we're doing that now in, in this pandemic using ARPA funds and everything else. The second thing I would point out is that we made an effort to equalize the access to the system across, across the state. So we've got 25 locations and there used to be 25 individual ways of doing intake and how locals would access the system. We established a call center and at least standardized and unified access into the system. So now we get 260,000 calls a year and they all, uh, that's the portal to get into legal aid. Whether you're online or through the phone system, regardless of where you're at, you're not traveling across three counties to get to a local office. You can, uh, in, in many cases, you talk to an attorney right after the phone call. And the other part of this is not only is there similar, similar uh, criteria for accessing the system, but having a centralized call center allows us as a nonprofit to triage those cases. We're not simply taking the first come first serve. We're able to use our nonprofit resources to kind of triage those cases, take the most compelling the most vulnerable because they, they're teed up in the call center. So we're using our scarce resources in the most impactful way. I think that's great. I didn't realize that you had that many appeals. Obviously that's gonna have a long-standing impact in terms of what the law is and how courts are interpreting it. That's, that's, that's huge. Rick, anything, anything you'd add in terms of you know, accomplishments or impacts you wanna highlight? Yeah, I, I, I would highlight two. Um, one, one is um, uh, the deep amount of consumer protection work that we've done along with George and Ken and, and Financial Protection Law Center in keeping for 20 years now predatory payday lending schemes out of this state, keeping predatory schemes across the board out of this state, um, providing debt buyer protection, providing consumer protections in a broad array of categories, um, I, I think has been a major part of the, the work that, that part of the center has done. I think a second area is in education and in, in the, on that I'm talking about all of the work that's been done for two decades to increase the amount of funding that went into the low wealth fund. In fact, to help to create the low wealth fund, the disadvantaged student supplemental fund, uh, increased amount of funding for exceptional children's programming for uh, uh, ESL learners, for um, uh, uh, increased uh, ability of schools to operate in poor communities and, and to create disadvantaged funding um, uh, services for students across the state long been part of the, the legislative agenda and work of the Justice Center. And it's only culminating now um, in Leandro and the Leandro litigation, which we've been a part of um, and uh, uh, have helped form the multi-year now 
on the ground coalition of, of more than 40 groups across the state uh, to support the Leandro litigation and ongoing efforts. I, I think, and I would add in that it's not just limited to Leandro. We've represented for years now um, intervener plaintiffs in the UNC admissions lawsuit that's now at the United States Supreme Court um, uh, to try to uphold uh, the affirmative um, uh, admissions policies of the university against challenge um, to, to uphold decades worth of work to show that creating diversity at public institutions of higher learning is a compelling governmental interest. If it's narrowly tailored, it ought to be allowed to exist. Um, so I think the work in the education field, the work that I've described previously in the consumer field, and along with what George and Ken have done, um, and really mirroring their work, but on the lobbying level more so on the housing and housing uh, affordability and trust fund based uh, areas. Yeah, Mark, uh, if I can, uh, let me just add to that. Uh, I, and I think that individually, I, you know, we can all have, we all have our stories, but I think collaboratively, it's very important to think about what uh, CCLA and legal aid and PISCA and the Justice Center, financial protection, what that alliance has done. When you think about the uh, Great Recession that began in 2008 with predatory lending all through the pandemic, there are literally tens of thousands of people who are still owners of their homes and uh, in possession of a lot of equity because of the collaboration on foreclosure and the policy work and the individual advocacy that took place in a collaborative way uh, for the last 12 to 13 years. I would, I would add to that as well, Mark. I mean, I, I think the eviction protection work during this pandemic particularly, the foreclosure protection work, the utility arrearage protection work, um, saved hundreds of thousands of peoples from even, uh, for people and families from even more trauma, more harm, more disease in this state, more deaths in this state. And that was a tremendous work of the Alliance of all of us. It was certainly a work of Bill Rowe and Al Ripley and my, my center and working with the governor's office and legislative leadership um, and in getting the money out as fast as we could to landlords because there clearly was in this pandemic, a mutuality of interest between getting landlords paid and being able to keep tenants in their homes. And finally, that, that collaborative uh, effort, I think, led us to be one of the nation's leaders in that regard. Yeah. And that, the work that we did together around the unemployment insurance system, which, which yeah. was stressed beyond imagination during the, the pandemic and the work with uh, the child tax credit and the extra credit grants and, getting the, the cash um, uh, coronavirus relief to the people who needed it the most, who were the lowest income, who were the hardest for the uh, funding agencies to find and, and, and qualify. Um, and it was all, all collaborative work within our network. And independent of even that work, I might add another sort of project that we're all engaged in and deeply engaged in. And that's one of those things that, that you can find bipartisan support for in what's otherwise a, a polarizing uh, environment is, uh, is, is driver's license restoration and expunction work with over one and a half million North Carolinians, uh, adult North Carolinians without their driver's license, about 1.2 million with criminal records getting them their life back, allowing them to get their driver's license back because they didn't pay a speeding ticket when 20 years ago um, is like crucial to employment, crucial to school opportunities, crucial to military opportunities and expunging um, records, giving them uh, an understanding that what you did at 16 shouldn't haunt you at 46, I think is some of the best work that all of us do. 
Yeah, and, and Mark, uh, I think the state bar members need to understand that all of this foreclosure, eviction, and driver's license restoration work all happens without any state funding. Yeah, well, and, and I will say, I think the, the people of North Carolina, oh, all of you and, and the organizations, you work with a real debt of gratitude, right? I mean, you just when you look at the areas and the impact and the thousands and thousands of people, uh, I think it's magnificent. And, you know, and I thank you for the, for the hard work and co collaboration and working together and, you know, finding that common ground to really help the needy people that don't have other people to advocate for them. I mean, that's the basic, <clears throat> the basic problem. These folks don't have access to the system. They don't understand the system. And you guys have, have found a way to, to make real strides. Let me shift a little bit and ask in terms of lessons you've learned. And I, I know you may be getting close, uh, close to retirement, although I don't want to make assumptions, although I think you've been pretty clear. Uh, I, at least I know Ken and George have talked about the fact that that day may be, that day may be coming. What, what kind of lessons would you say you've learned and what kind of advice would you give to predecessors that take, you know, take these roles you know, going forward? And let's, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you, Ken. I just think, you know, you got to be persistent. You, 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 you just have to work at it. Um, you know, we have a kind of a joke in our community, in the legal services community about, you know, we're anti-poverty agencies. And when we get there and end poverty, we'll be done. And, and nobody really thinks that, you know, that realistically is going to happen in, in the near future. But just because you can't finish it, um, doesn't mean you can't you can't work at it. You have to be on the path, and and I just think people have to be uh, strong and creative and collaborative. You know, we work. We talk about working with each other. There are a huge number of private lawyers in the state who work with us on a volunteer basis. We have about a thousand private lawyers in Charlotte who work with our agency and the Charlotte Office of Legal Aid of North Carolina as pro bono lawyers helping with work and you just gotta plug away um, in all these different areas, in all these different areas. Thanks. George, thoughts on lessons you've learned or things you would want your, you know, whoever replaces you at, you know, at the head of legal aid to, to, to take away in, in terms of stuff you've learned? Well, I, I would just echo Ken. I think persistence in showing up every day because it's it's a dynamic environment every day, and 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 you have to show up and and you have to meet the emerging needs. You have to meet the circumstances as they lie on that given day. Again, it's a, ch a constantly changing environment, and you're and you're always trying to meet the need, the desperate need out there. I have to say a word about all of our our colleagues, staff attorneys, they're really the backbone of all this work. They're so committed and dedicated and smart. Uh, they could be doing so many other things, but yet they've dedicated their lives and their, their professional working lives uh, and careers to this, to this work, this important work that it, it really, um, that, that's not remunerative to them in a, in a monetary sense, but in terms of their impact, I don't think there's a, there's a place they'd rather be. Gotcha. Rick, thoughts on, thoughts on advice, things you've learned, you want to make yeah. sure to pass on? Yeah, I would. Um, I think first I agree completely with what George and Ken have eloquently and cogently said. Um, and I, I think a couple things. One lesson is, is in all of our actions, 
we are about restoring human dignity and respect um, for many people who in court, whether they are plaintiffs or defendants, have had that ripped from them. And giving them, even if we lose the case, fighting for them and giving them that respect back, there's nothing better, right, than a client saying, you fought for me. And, and, and I, you changed my life by knowing someone was there for me when I needed them the most. And I think that's a core function, a cathartic function, and never more prevalent than right now. I think secondly, um, as in all aspects of our life, I would, despite all of the trauma that's been inflicted on so many people and exponentially on those who are poor or disadvantaged by the last years, is to try to remind ourselves that civility breeds civility and incivility breeds incivility in everything we do, whether it's in the courtroom, whether it's in our offices. And I think that's crucial to remember at a time when, when tensions are high in our society, polarizing factions exist everywhere. And I think the, the, the third thing I guess I, I would say is uh, a, a reminder that while we talk a lot in access to justice about um, systems and um, uh, kiosks and all of that kind of stuff, and important though they may be, no, nothing replaces human contact and kindness and care and love. And that means particularly for those who are most victimized, most vulnerable, feel least represented. And if we do that and commit the resources to do that, it exponentially will increase the humanity of our society, but also the efficiency and productivity of our society, the relationships in our society, our ability to be a unified country again. And I think that starts with, with understanding that, that giving a person a lawyer actually is just for everybody. Um, it, it really lends itself to a system that was what America promises to be. Terrific, terrific and inspirational. Thank you, Rick, George, and Ken. A lot of great insight. Thank you for saving time to talk to us today. Thank you for your lifelong dedication uh, to trying to serve those that need uh, the most assistance, the low income uh, and needy folks of North Carolina. I certainly appreciate uh, your long dedication and all the accomplishments that you have accomplished. This has been Bar Talk, the official podcast of the North Carolina State Bar. I want to remind our listeners that the views of our guests do not represent the views of the State Bar itself, but we want to uh, provide everyone an opportunity to hear uh, the history of legal aid and hear from some of the folks that have been there making it happen. So thanks to everyone. Uh, we'll look forward to, to talking again next time.